you, Jeff. Sweet time of worship, sweet time of prayer. So encouraging hearing about our students. And, uh, and I loved the fact that they just courageously uh, faced their doubts together in a safe place. Uh, that, that made my uh, week hearing about that. Well, we are going to dive back into the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn, if you would, to chapter 4. If you got your physical Bible or on your phone. And we're going to be covering verses 1 through 10. And uh, I'm hoping I'm not alone in this. But I, I just have felt in the last probably couple of years, and maybe I'm just getting old, so that maybe that's part of it. But I just, I look around at the way the world is going and how people are living and the, just the practices of life. And I'm not saying this in a condescending way, like I'm somehow above it or beyond it. I'm just, I'm just seeing it and I can also relate to it in a way, but it's, it's just like the world has lost its mind. Can you relate to that? Do you, do you ever think that? and I thought well what is it what what bugs me about that what bugs you about that and I think somewhere in there is this sense of meaninglessness purposelessness uh, futility and um in, in light of where we're going in this passage today, I thought of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it describes, uh, Solomon uses this phrase over and over and over again, striving after wind. And I thought, man, there is something to that. When we look around us at the way the world is going, it's as obvious as it's ever been that humanity is striving after wind. Here's how Solomon said, he said, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. That literally means emptiness, futility, vapor, that which vanishes quickly and leaves nothing behind. There is this sense of meaninglessness and I don't think it's just among the old. I think it's getting further and further down into our generations where even the youngest among us feel this sense of meaninglessness, aimlessness in the world. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says, that book poses this question for you and for me. What will life be for you, vanity or victory? What will life, what will all of life, everything that you do, all of your choices, what will that mean? Vanity or victory? I think that question, that book, that idea, it, it confronts a mindset in us that I would just say is a, it's a victim mentality. I think there's this sense of this bad old world is happening to me, and I don't like it. I feel like a victim, and I deserve better than that. And therefore, I will live however I want to. 
I don't care what anybody thinks or anybody says, even God. That, that's that striving after, win, after the wind. Last week, when we looked at Israel as they came out of Egypt, I think that's where they were. Now think about it. You're, you've been under hundreds of years of oppression. God graciously comes in, miraculously delivers you, takes you through the Red Sea. And on the other side, what do you begin to do? Grumble and complain. Why did God bring us out here? They were full of discontentment. They were demanding. They were disobedient. After being delivered. And I think you guys, and we'll just kind of keep it with us in the church, right? I think we're in danger of doing that. Our culture it feels entitled. Our culture is demanding. Our culture is very obviously disobedient to the things of God, but it seems like it's kind of rubbing off on us. For the Israelites, after their spectacular deliverance from the oppression of Egypt, and they shockingly refused to enter into a land of promise. And we're scratching our heads going, what in the world is wrong with you guys? And the deal is, you can read about this, when the spies came back looking at the land of promise, it wasn't what they expected. It was what God promised, but it wasn't what they expected. So they said to God Almighty, no thanks. You ever do that? You ever say, God, this isn't, just, this isn't going quite how I like. I know what you've called me to. I know what you want for me. It's just not what I thought it was going to be. No thanks. That's the danger. Here's how it worked out for the Israelites. Hebrews 3, 9 through 11 God said, your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God drew a line in the sand. About 600,000 men died in the wilderness, never seeing the promise fulfilled in their lives. After being reminded of Israel's epic failure, and this is where we pick up today, the writer of Hebrews enters, uh, introduces this amazing message of hope because the promise didn't die in the wilderness with those people who refused to go in. God introduced an opportunity for a new generation. 
And this chapter begins, chapter 4, verse 1 says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. It, it would have been, if we were reading through Hebrews for the first time, and we read about all that happened in the wilderness, and it's a big bummer. And we're, we might be wondering what happened to the promise. I wonder if it's still available for anyone. And then we read chapter 4, verse 1. And we're thinking, there's a chance. It's a possibility, an opportunity. I, we just sang a minute ago, God's a promise keeper. And that's exactly what he does here. He gives them the promise yet again. Now, it isn't a new message. He, like they, they would have known the history of Israel, so they would have understood that even though one generation died in the wilderness, a second generation was able to enter the land. That was God's grace and kindness to Israel. But here's what he said to those leaders um, on the front end of their rebellion. Numbers 14.31, your little ones who you said would become a prey... I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. So the promise of entering his rest still stands, even after their rebellion. And as we know from last week, um, David in Psalm 95, hundreds of years later, speaks of that promise. And now here the writer of Hebrews Several hundred years later again is speaking of the promise. And here we are in 2021 talking about God's promise of rest. Now you may have noticed that I just exchanged the land that was promised to the people of Israel with the concept of rest. If you did notice that, good for you. You're paying attention. But you may also wonder, well, why did you do that? How can you do that? God's promise to Israel was a promised land. Where, where did this idea of rest come from? And I'm, I'm actually just following what David and the writer of Hebrews did because both of them, when they're pointing back to what happened with God's people, they both used the word rest, not the word land, when speaking of this promise. So, What's going on there? Why is there an association of land and rest? And it has everything to do with the background of the promise. So I'm going to do a little survey of Exodus as it relates to these two words. I'm going to give you references and I'm going to read stuff, but you're just going to have to write it down and go back and read it for yourself. But follow with me because this is so important and, and it will relate to us by the end. We begin with the promise. What is the promise? Where did it first show up? Exodus 3, 16 through 17. This is when God comes to Moses through the burning bush, and he's talking about what he's going to do with him and for Israel. He says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's the promise of the land 
given to Israel through Moses. Now, coupled with that is a way of life. So God is going to bring them somewhere, and he expects them to travel there in a particular way. Exodus 16, 23, and then 29 and 30. This is what the Lord has commanded to those people that he brought out of Egypt and is taking to Canaan. Tomorrow, this was one of the particulars. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So during their trip from Egypt to the promised land, one of the things that they were to do was to practice a thing called Sabbath rest. We'll find out why later. This rest was to be a covenant sign. This is the third thing, Exodus 31, 13 and 16. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? For this is a sign between you, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing, observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. So this solemn day of rest was actually a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people, and that was to be practiced while he is delivering them. That was to remind them of him. So that they wouldn't get consumed with themselves and doing things like striving after wind. Now we get to the essence of the gift. What was God giving these people with a promised land and a day of rest? Exodus thirty-three fourteen. the Lord said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. So the promised land certainly was a place that flowed with milk and honey, right? It's a great place physically. But what it represented was the presence and the rest of God. That's what he was giving them. That the the geographical location was just that, just the location. But it represented, it's like God will be there. We will be with him and we will have everything that we need to live as he intends. Now, if I sum all of that up, so that's our, our fly through the book of Exodus. Moses writes in Deuteronomy what all of this means. Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 11. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance of the Lord your God is giving you. That's what God said to his people as they were heading out into the wilderness. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose 
to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. So there was this place that God was taking Israel, and that place would be the place of his presence, his dwelling. They would have everything that they would need, but they would bring everything that they were to him in that place. And, and the word that would define what life would be like in that place was rest. So David in Psalm 95 and the writer of Hebrews, and today we speak about this idea of if we're connecting upward with God, we are entering into his rest. That's what we're doing. And that's what we were created for. Let me define biblical rest for you. And I'll do it in a couple of ways. First of all, when we hear the word rest, you and I probably think of inactivity, like taking a nap or going on a vacation, right? So it isn't merely inactivity, although that's related. It's the cessation of particular activities. Things that are meaningless, fruitless, vain, Things that revolve around self-promotion, self-fulfillment, self-protection, self-devotion. Do you notice the key word there? It's activities that are absorbed with self. Biblical rest is ceasing from those kinds of activities. It's becoming obsessed and consumed, not with ourselves, but with our God. That's what biblical rest is all about. It's hungering and thirsting after that kind of place. In fact, that's the second definition. Biblical rest is a place or position with God of uninterrupted peace and intimacy. Let me say that again. Biblical rest, and this is this is different. When we think of rest, we tend to think of posture almost, right? So biblical rest is a place and a position with God of uninterrupted peace and intimacy. Write down Romans 5.1 and Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Romans 5.1 says that having entrusted our lives to Christ, we have peace with God. That's a place of rest because without it, we would be enemies of God, right? We wouldn't be in a place of peace with him. But then Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we are given access to the peace of God, right? Pray to him and he will give you his peace. That's biblical rest and that's really what God has been offering humanity all along. We're going to see more about that in a moment. So back to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's still a chance. The writer says, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. Once again, we, we get these cautions or these warnings or these exhortations, and I honestly think there's something in us that says, I don't want God to be like that. And I hate to break it to you, but he can do that if he wants to, 
right? And, and the bottom line is, th- these strong words of exhortation are for our good. Just think about 600,000 men standing at the border of the promised land, told by God, I've promised to give you this, to give you complete rest from everything that ails you. And they see giants and they say, no thanks. What that says is they're more afraid of giants than they are of their God. And so, wouldn't you want God to say, listen, I I realize you're feeling something about the bigness of life that's coming at you. But listen, it's no comparison to me. That's helpful. That realigns my perspective, my view of life. So let us fear. Let us recoil at the idea of rejecting God's promise. Even though it's a challenging path. When we think of entering... uh, into rest, I, I want to say this, because um, that's the next section of our passage. We need to think of this idea in three phases. So there is an immediate phase of entering into rest. Then there is an ongoing phase. There's an aspect of entering that is ongoing throughout life. And then there is an eventual phase that will be the end of life. That's where we finally and fully enter into rest. You can think of it as already along the way and not yet. Already I have entered, ongoing, on the way, throughout life, and not yet I will enter one day. So beginning in verse 2, the writer explains entering rest or not, He says, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, speaking of the Israelites, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, the emphasis here really is less on Israel's failure and more on the opportunity that these new listeners have. And basically, he's just saying, there was this message of good news that came to them and to you. And for them, the good news was not met with reception. They didn't say yes to that. And so the good news couldn't help them. But that's not your situation because you have an opportunity to receive it. You have an opportunity to say yes to God in that. So it is good news. You have the promise still available to you. The reason that it didn't work for the Israelites is because they had no faith. Good news can't benefit those who dismiss it, right? I I thought of this. How many of you knew of Bitcoin in uh, 2015? (laughs) Few people in here? Okay, I looked up the price. It was about $337 per share. November 9th, 2015. Do you know what it's trading for today? 62-ish? Thousand? 
Now, there were people in 2015 that were saying, listen, Bitcoin's got a lot of potential. It's really going somewhere. And somebody could have said, 337, seriously? That seems like a lot for nothing. They're saying, it's, it's going to go up. It's going to go up. What if you would have bought one share in 2015 for 337? Today, you would have experienced an 18,135% gain. Now, just knowing about Bitcoin in 2015, has that caused anybody in here to gain financially? Like, we can't just go, yeah, I knew about Bitcoin. You don't get any benefit from that. You would have had to invest in Bitcoin in 2015 to experience that massive gain. It's the idea that James give us, faith without works is dead. It's not earning our salvation, it's not performing for God, it's simply acting upon what we believe. For the Israelites, they stood at the border of the promised land and they probably even said, I believe that's the promised land. I think that's what God wants for me. But I don't like the giant, so I'm not going in. Therefore, there's no benefit. They miss out on everything that was awaiting them had they only stepped into that place by faith. And that's exactly what God's calling us to do today. It looks a little different. We're not entering into the land of Canaan, but we're called to enter into his rest. That place of peace and intimacy that can only be found in him. By contrast to the Israelites, the writer says, we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is one of those Verses that I just wish I understood better. (laughs) I mean, this is the way that he wrote it. I think I get what he's going for here. But the writer of Hebrews, I'm thinking, man, there's a lot there that's really difficult. Simply, he's saying, we have believed, therefore we have entered in. Now, keep in mind what I said a minute ago about an immediate an ongoing and a future expression of that entering. But he's saying present tense, we have entered that rest. So it has begun. And the writer is again pleading with his listeners, if you haven't entered in, please do so. And if you have entered in, but you're living like you didn't, you're missing out. Because there's a life of rest that is available to you. That was one of the questions that I wanted to ask us to start with today. Do you feel like you're striving after wind? Even having placed your faith in Christ, if so, enter in. The, The invitation is still for you. You can enter in today, not to start your salvation, but to live in that ongoing part. to experience the rest of God right now. You don't have to wait till you go to heaven. You won't have it in its fullest sense now. 
But don't you want every bit of the rest that God does have for you today? Today? Quick summary of verses 1 through 3. Enter God's rest by healthy fear and humble faith. That's how you enter in. Healthy fear and humble faith. Now, building on the reference to God finishing his works, the writer uh, points to the origin of the Sabbath. And the big idea here is that history begins and ends with the rest of God. Even though it, it kind of pops up here and there throughout our Bible, like actually this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 4, this passage, this is the most prominent discussion or explanation of God's rest in all of our Bible. So there were a lot of years that went by where people didn't have this to work with. It was always there, but he's giving some explanation. And part of what he's saying is this rest that you're being invited to enter into began in creation, specifically in Genesis 2. In the, in the book of Hebrews, verse 4, chapter 4, chapter four he says, uh, He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. He's referencing Genesis 2, where after the six days of creation, you've heard that story, right? On the seventh day, I'll read it specifically, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, do you guys think that an omnipotent God got worn out from all that creating? No, here's what happened. He created for six days, just as he planned. And when it was all said and done, I, this is the image I have in my mind. It's like any artist or craftsperson or whatever. It's like you just sort of step back, you fold your arms, and you just kind of take a look. That's the seventh day. And here's what creation did on the seventh day. It began doing what it was created to do. Listen to Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, this concept of the rest of God is this place where everything is reveling in the glory of God. And when you and I enter into that place, we gain all of the benefits, not of our own glory, but of his. It's a, a place of great intimacy, security, and rest. The writer goes on to say, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formally received the good news, failed to enter because of disobedience. We talked about that a moment ago. Despite all of that, he that is God appoints a certain day, today, 
saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day till later on. The big idea here is that though Israel didn't go in when they should, they did later. But even that expression of rest was partial and temporary. That wasn't the ultimate destination. It was meant to point to an ultimate destination that would be open to all of humanity, but only to those who would believe, only to those who would identify their life with that by faith. That's who that land, that rest, that place would be about. Canaan, for Israel, that was just a shadow of the things to come. And the idea that God said later that there was a today, in Psalm 95, in the book of Hebrews, first century, and in 2021, like there's a today. That's God's patience toward us. Write down 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone would perish. Or to put it in these terms, God is patient toward us, not wishing that any would miss his rest. It's available to you and I today. And today, if you hear his voice, got one word for you. Don't harden your hearts. Don't dismiss it. Don't diminish it. Don't say thanks, but no thanks. Just to reinforce this idea of God speaking, I want to read to you the New Testament invitation from the words of Christ. Write down Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, and this is how we'll finish. This is your invitation, standing at the border of the rest of God. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believer or not, if you are striving after the wind, you know exactly what he's talking about. It's heavy. It makes you weary, doesn't it? And Jesus says, listen, you don't need to do a song and dance for me. Just come. Just come to me, the person of Christ, with all of your junk, with all of your struggles, with all of your doubts, bring every bit of it to me and I'll give you rest. St. Augustine beautifully declared to God in his book of confessions, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And If you'll do that, you will find rest for your souls. Now, this isn't different 
than the first phrase, but this points to that along the way part, which is really just discipleship. Jesus says, come to me. And then you could say, he says, follow me. And if you'll do that, listen, it's not going to be easy in the sense of like carefree, nothing bad will ever happen to you. We live in a broken, sin-wrecked world, but here's what you can know. I am gentle and lowly at heart. I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. And you will have everything that you need to do what I've called you to do until I bring you into your ultimate rest. That's his promise. And he's a promise keeper. Jeremiah knew of this in Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord. So here's the picture of taking his yoke upon you. Jeremiah says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's where rest is found. And then lastly, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that so beautifully sets up the last two verses of this passage, which are a summary of everything that we have discussed. So just listen to this, and then we'll ask for our so what. The writer says, so then, in light of all that we know about Israel, in light of this promise of rest, in light of Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, and here we are in 2021, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You can have it. Whoever has entered God's rest, think about Christ saying, my yoke is easy and my load is light. Listen to this. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. For you and me, It's not like God setting all of creation up and then stepping back and marveling at it. For you and I, it's it's looking at all of our works and seeing how miserably they fall short and crying out to God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he says, I will. I have. You can rest. And you can. That's his invitation. So for our so what? Let's do this. We know that God has made a promise. And the question is, will you enter into the rest that has been offered you today? Maybe it's the first time. And if so, awesome. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe it's you going, you know what? I've been striving after wind, even though I have rest available to me. So maybe you just reorient yourself a little bit there. Maybe you have lost sight of the rest that is ahead of you, that God promises to all who have entrusted their lives to him.
I don't know what your application might be here, but I just want to urge you to go to God with that. Thank him for his promises. Thank him that he is faithful to fulfill them. And invite him to show you how to walk in the rest of God for the rest of life. Take a moment, prayerfully consider that, and then we'll pray. such a sweet reminder we look so many directions for what we might believe to be rest and we're always found wanting thank you that you do provide that for us and uh, Lord whatever adjustments we need to make whatever steps we need to take to act upon the faith that we possess, Lord, would you help us to do that? And Lord, would you um, make us attentive to and aware of the rest that is all around us in our relationship with you? And I pray that we would find great satisfaction and fulfillment, joy and fruitfulness dwelling in that place that place of peace and intimacy with you thank you lord pray that in jesus name amen